Okay, we're about ready here. So, uh, been off of Colossians a couple weeks, but uh, got a few more, I think, a uh, few more uh, weeks, I think, to get through this letter. You know, we've covered a lot of theological topics at the beginning. I talked about a number of topics, and just right off the bat, thinking back what we've covered up to this point, we, you know, we really focused on Christ, who Christ is, what He's done, both God and man. We talked about the two natures. Um, talked about Christ's work, especially uh, Paul addresses the reconciliation that Christ has done for us, which also led to discussions on our justification, and then how that is delivered to us um, through the gift of baptism. We spent a lot of time on baptism, issues with baptism, and faith. Those are kind of some of the major theological topics that we've covered up to this point. But now, as you guys will recall, back in chapter 3, Paul then now has gone to the other side of the coin, kind of on this, the Christian life and sanctification. And we remember we covered in, in chapter 3, we talked about uh, putting to death the stuff that we're not to do. That was the put off section in 3.5, and we went through a number of that. And then we talked about in uh, three, uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, then the put on that what the Christian is supposed to do and what we try to do in our sanctified lives. So um, on that, why don't we open with the invocation and we'll pick up from where we left off. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so as I just mentioned, uh, we're, we're in this now, the sanctified, our, uh, how the Christian lives uh, the Christian life. Uh, we almost got through the entire section of the put-on section. And, uh, and, and again, I just want to stress, and I've said this many times, this is not in the context of the justification, right? Because we know Paul and all of his writing is justification. It's not based on our works, but solely based on Christ and what he's done for us. But then on the same, at the same point, Paul is talking about then how the Christian lives his life in the sanctified area. So if you guys will recall, in, way at the beginning on Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul did right off the bat write this. He said in Colossians 1, 9 and then in 10, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then verse 10 Right again, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul did introduce this sanctification life way at the beginning, even, and in, in that he and Timothy were praying for the Colossians to so that to walk in this manner worthy of the Lord and bearing every good fruit. So. Then we talked about, if you guys recall, we talked about the old man and the new man. So uh, old man, new man, this is our justified life, and then the new man is our sanctified life. And I want to talk again just, just briefly. We talked about the original sin, and in the Augsburg Confession in Article 2, it says this about original sin. Furthermore, it is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, 
All human beings who are born in the natural way are conceived and born into sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil lusts and inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this same innate disease and original sin is truly sin and condemns God's eternal wrath. All who are not in turn born anew, which is the new man, through baptism in the Holy Spirit. So, original sin, though, what I want to stress is even though Paul is stressing in our sanctified life that these are the things we do, we still know that we have original sin within us. And in fact, Luther wrote that original sin does still remain after baptism. But in baptism, this is the important thing, our sin is forgiven. Not that it no longer exists, but that it is not accounted as sin. So even though we still sin, our sin is not accounted against us in the new man. So there is this kind of position that, uh, you know, Paul is telling us what we are to do, and we are to do that, to try to do good works. But at the same time, we do have to recognize that we still have original sin within us, and that daily, we, we, you know, as Luther talked about, um, daily we look back at our baptism, and the new man, or the old man is drowned daily, and the new man emerges. And this is where this concept of what we're living out, our good works, is where this comes to place. Um, I do want to look at this a little bit more dogmatically just for a minute, and I hope you bear with me, because this is a difficult subject about good works. I mean, we think, you know, Lutherans, we do think about, you know, good works have nothing to do with our justification, and that's right. We've said that over and over. But we can't still poo-poo good works. And and so as I was thinking about this the last couple weeks I had off, I had a little time to myself and uh, did a little bit more reading on it in our Book of Concord, which are our Lutheran confessions, and just kind of looking back at good works. Um, so let me just talk here a bit about what I found in what's called the Formula of Concord. I know Pastor uh, referenced that a lot. There's an entire article on good works. It's Article 4, and it addresses good works. And if I could just kind of read a couple things out of this on, on what, what our confessional documents say about the importance of good works and, and the context that, that they're in. Okay, so Formula of Concord, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I've just kind of picked out some good, great statements that, that I want to go over with you. So first of all, the Formula of Concord, when it talks about good works, it starts with this, and this is what I've said, and this is what we all know. Um, we also believe, teach, and confess that good works must be completely excluded from any question of salvation. Okay? So we talked about that, so that we're not talking about it. But then the Formula of Concord says, but we do say that good works follow from true faith. Okay? So then we teach, believe, and confess that those who have been reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which we've talked about that in our baptism, right? This is the language that, that our confessions say, quote, are obligated to do good works, okay? So we don't poo-poo good works. We, we, we say that we are still obligated to do good works. But good works are performed, quote, out of a spontaneous spirit, not because of compulsion or coercion of the law, because they are no longer under law, 
but are un, under grace. Okay, so what this is meaning it says is that we, when we teach good works, and the confessions do again, this isn't something that we're we're, we're forcing on our people to try to make it something that, again, puts us in the justification that, that, that you have to do this, have to do this. But we do speak about it under grace. So it's kind of this gift language, okay? We think about our good works then is something that flows freely and naturally, not coerced, but flows from our faith and from what Christ has done for us. And that's what our good works are then. Um, what else? Okay, and, and, and it sums it up here. We also believe, teach, and confess that not our works, but only God's Spirit working through faith preserves faith and salvation in us. Good works are a testimony of His presence and indwelling. And again, this is, this is it. Uh, it the, the good works actually are the fruit. And we can say that it really is the genuineness of your faith. That's the resulting uh, what results in our sanctified life is good works. I want to take it even a little bit one step further. I went back to my notes from seminary, and Dr. Masaki is one of my favorite professors, and I think he may have been here before. Is, did someone say he came here? No, you guys are shaking your head. I don't know if you know Dr. Masaki, but he's an excellent the- theologian, one of my favorite uh, pastor, uh, professors and pastor. Just a couple things I, I pulled out of my notes then. And Dr. Masaki says that, when we look at good works, they're really not optional, okay? The justified man, we are bound to continue to do good works, but not by coercion. That's the law, okay? But it's because, uh, it's because of the gospel. The gospel gives us this and these gifts to where then we do our good works freely. So why are good works necessary? Again, not for justification, but good works merely confirm our salvation. Again, fruit language, okay? So good works are a necessary part of the Christian's sanctified life. Luther even takes it a little further. I pulled this out of the small call articles. Luther states that if good works do not follow faith, the faith is false and not true. And this is, this is kind of hard language, and we do forget about this because we tend not, not to talk about good works. And there is a time and place to talk about good works and a time not to. But certainly Luther stressed, again, if good works do not follow faith, the faith is false and not true. So the good work, what, what then, when you read, and I've done a lot of reading on this and written papers, then we think about the good works. I know Paul kind of gives us stuff, but really in our lives, how do we think of this? Where, where are our good works mainly? And when you read a lot of the Luther and, and our early church fathers, um, they take it away from you know Rome. Rome would say that good works are only done in certain areas, such as those who enter the monastery and live the monastic life or become you know, priests. So those are the only ones that do good works. And they create all these then extra hard things that they are requiring people to do. And that's coercion, okay? And that's not what we believe. What we believe and what the Bible really tells us, and especially Paul, is good works aren't some inventions that we make, these hard categories of monastic life and everything. It's basically the doctrine of vocation, and I've spoke about this um, before. It's really how we live our daily, ordinary lives in our different stations in lives, 
okay? And we all have different stations and vocations that we do. And Luther then goes on to say, one of my favorite quotes that Luther says is one of the best works that he sees done is when a mom is changing the baby's dirty diaper. I mean, isn't that great? So everything really in our good works is how we live out our daily lives and our vocations. And everything we do in our vocation is done not for us, right? It's done strictly for our neighbor. It's out of love for neighbor. So when we think about good works, we don't have to add this extra coercion or burden upon us to come up with all these things. No, it's just what flows through us from what God has given us in our different stations in life. And we're going to cover a lot of those today as we, we get into the table of duty section. So it's whether you're a mother or a father, or son, daughter, you know, spouse, you're an employer, employee. It's just everything in our daily lives. That's where the Christian actually gets to do the good works out of love for the neighbor and because of what Christ did us. So again, we talk about good works. It's not this pressure of coming up with all these high, very hard things to do, these monastic lives. It's just living our daily lives and love for our neighbor. And that's why I love this topic. Uh, we don't like to talk about good works, but when we see good works... Um, in this sphere of vocation and how we live out our lives for our neighbor, it makes sense. And that's actually how God then takes care of, preserves, and maintains his creations. It's the masks of God. That's how God keeps an ordered society, keeps the family, feeds people and everything. It's through all these various vocational activities. And again, that's where our good works are done. That's why Luther is very um, adamant about talking about good works, but it's within the sphere of the doctrine of vocation. Okay? So, but really, Paul is telling us here on this put-on section, he is, when we've been through this, everything he's really talking about is how we treat our neighbor. And again, this is on vocation. When when we went through the list, you know, we're uh, compassionate, we're kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, um, all this stuff. And, and then it finally is summed up with love. And this is really talking about this vocational aspect of our lives. Okay? So that's what Paul was talking about. So this, this work is never done, this putting on. We're always putting off the old man and what we're not supposed to do, put to death all the, these bad things that we've talked about, but then we put on everything that really is ultimately aimed towards love toward our neighbor. So this is a joyful part of our Christian life, getting rid of the wretchedness to which the devil will enslave us to sin and death, but then putting on the new life towards our neighbor, which is a foretaste of the feast to come in the resurrection. Okay. So that kind of sums up there. We did leave off then um, with uh, verse 16. So I'll I'll finish uh, here. We'll start at 317, and then we'll move on into our next next, uh, portion of the outline, which is the table of duties, which begins at 18. Okay, so 317 then. Are there any questions up to this point? I mean, I know I've kind of rehashed, kind of did a summary of what I've talked about questions on neighbor and our vocations. Yes, Ellie? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Hmm. 
Um, I was just going to ask, uh, there's a verse in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 37, that says God will give you the desires of your heart. Um, you know, and it seems to me that our God is changing our heart out. He's giving us a new heart, and that new heart will desire to do the will of God. I think that's kind of how what, what we're saying here, or what Absolutely. you're saying. Absolutely, uh, But yeah. the verse, it says, they will give you the desires of your heart. Well, elsewhere in the Bible, it says the heart is, you know, extremely wicked, and, you know, it. David is... Uh, confessing or asking God in Psalm 139 to search me and know all my sins. So is there a way to reconcile that or is that? Yeah, there is. And that's, that you bring up a good point. It's the doctrine. It's the simul et peccatora. It's the sin, saint and sinner at the same time. That's the simul. Luther writes about this. We're, we're both saint and sinner at the same time. We've got a hardened heart, but at the same time, we have a gracious heart at times where God, you know, it, through our justification, uh, the new man, we do want to do these things, but then we do revert back to the old man where we don't. So we are constantly living in this saint sinner. Of course, we try to do more uh, on the uh, saint side, but when we don't, we realize that we are a sinner, and that's when the law really squarely hits us and accuses us, right, and then turns us to see that uh, when, when we're accused of that law, then it turns us back to our Savior. When we turn back to our Savior, our hearts is, and then we want to do the good things as a result of the gifts he gives us. So it is. It's kind of a, um, I can't remember the term what it's called, but it's, 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 it's um, darn, I can't remember, remember what term, but it is the concept of symbol. We're at the same time saint, uh, saint and sinner at the same time. So that's how we see that all the time. We see people doing this. Paul, Paul, at the same time, you know, he he talks about this all the time. I want the things I want to do, I don't do, and you know, it's this constant struggle that the Christian has, and that's why we're saint and sinner at the same time. I think the word is dichotomy. That's it. There you go. Dichotomy. And Appreciate it. Yes, circle gets a square. <laughs> exactly. Um, I ask Pastor about this all the time, about you know, especially now at Christmas, the beggar on the side of the street. I mean, if I don't give, I feel like a heel. I feel awful, and I usually don't because I can rationalize why I shouldn't. And then I drive away and I say, Bob, go back. <laughs> and then he says no, and then I go, Oh, phew, don't have to go back. <laughs> Yeah. But he said it should be, he says, and Pastor does too, spontaneous, like if you feel like it, do it. If you don't feel like it, no no big deal. Mm-hmm. But what is your take on it? Yeah, I it's mean, it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. And, you know, there are certain, you know, each case scenario, I mean, I, you can always make an argument why you should give to the to the guy standing in the corner or why you shouldn't, you know. And so I think that there is, we've talked about, Paul wrote about it, we've studied here, there is some Christian freedom where we have... You know, we have an ability to discern, you know, should we give this person money or not. So there is Christian freedom and all that. And and there shouldn't there shouldn't be a time though when, when you're binding your conscience on that, because that's not what Paul talks about. If you want to give to the guy, stand on the corner, you do, and if you don't, because you have reasons why, 
uh, that's okay. But it th then though, when we think about other things that are, that are more concrete and not so discretionary, you know, we are to love our neighbor. We are to live out of our vocations, not for ourselves. So I don't think that there's a lot of wiggle room in there, you know. We know that we, we put our neighbors first and, and we do, that's where we do our good works. But I do think that there's some free, you know, freedom of choice in, in terms of, uh, well, I guess that's a bad word, uh, a Christian freedom on determining, you know, do I have to do that or not? But I think where we get, where it can really be bad is where it binds your conscience, okay? So I think that you make a decision whether you give to the homeless and you can tell, you know, if you think you feel bad about it, you can say, Lord, have mercy if I've just sinned because I didn't give my ass for your grace, okay? <laughs> I think that's the best we can do on that. So there are going to be times where you don't know. Where you make the right decision on whether that was true, a true good work or not. But I think at the end of the day, you can't bind your conscience. You've got to keep going back and looking at the cross, okay, and asking for forgiveness. Yeah. Neil? I think that is an example of another opportunity to witness. You can't just stop anybody on the street and witness to them. But when they're holding up that sign, hmm, you have an invitation. Now, uh, to just witness to them and drive away isn't going, doesn't work. Give them a little something. Maybe he <laughs> is going to misspend it. Maybe it's a, a fraud. But it gives you the opportunity. You give them the $10, and then you have a couple minutes and say, do you know about Christ? And you get something to answer. I've done that, and I have had somebody answer back, no, I, I've heard his name, but I don't know much about him. Bang. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's a Christian freedom. That's a great, great point there. If that's something that you're given to do and you want to do that, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. And that could be a great opportunity to witness too. But I think, though, we've got to be careful. That's a great opportunity. But if for some reason you decide, no, I'm not going to do that, you can't really burden your conscience about it. Because uh, we do, you know, look at that and got to keep focused on the cross. But if that's something that you're given to do and you want to do, absolutely do it. It could be a great way. Absolutely. Ms. Ellie, I think you had a question. Being an advocate of Christian education, and we really drop the ball if we don't continue this with our children. The, the, verse, the verses in 1 Corinthians that I love, when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right. goodness, faithfulness, I'm not remembering the rest, but it, that to have to be reviewing that with our children, whether in the home or in the classroom, is essential. And I'm um, an advocate of of um, the one who started our dictionary process. Noah Webster said, "If we take the Word of God out of our classrooms, it's the." He said, it is the demise of America. What's, what, is, what the ugliness is that's going on in America right now, it scares me for our children. Yeah, right. And, and that's why I think it's important. And I'm going to be referring to the catechism uh, a couple times today. And that's why Luther says the small catechism, I don't have the exact wording, but he says this, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household, right? That's how he starts a small catechism, and that's Luther's thing. It's catechizing our children, daily catechesis. It's very important. So, 
Yep, uh, not doing it in the schools, but knowing that, you know, I think it's important for us to catechize our children, but you know what, to continue to catechize ourselves. It's an ongoing process, and that's another problem. We think about catechism, and that we have the, uh, when they, then the kids are confirmed, we think, oh, that's a graduation, you're done. Actually, we've got to look at this as that actually point in, the, in our, their lives and then our lives. That's actually just the beginning, right? When you're confirmed, that's the beginning. And it's an ongoing, continued study and reading the catechism and the Bible. And that's a part of the sanctified life that we do, right? Continued study of the Lord's Word, um, <clears throat> in, in, increasing um, our knowledge of the Lord's Word. And that actually increases our faith. It really does. And then with an increased faith, it increases the good works, and it's just an ongoing process. But again, because of this symbol, we will stumble, but we look back at the cross, we get forgiveness, and the old man is drowned daily, and the new man emerges, okay? But you're right. <clears throat> this is very important in, in catechesis and studying. Okay. <clears throat> All right, any other questions on that? <clears throat> okay, so verse 17 so, so after he's just now talked about all the put-on stuff that we're do, he finishes sections with this, and this is awesome. And whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, do everything in the giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So it says, beginning, it says, and whatever you do. Really what the Greek says is everything, whatever, ever you may do. So very stressful on this, Paul is, that when he writes this, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now I've talked about name number of times, but in the name of Jesus really denotes his saving work that enables us then to do all that we do. And the study note here in our, in our um, Lutheran study Bibles actually has a really good line on it. 317. So it says, everything, there is no division between the sacred and the secular concerning what a Christian says and does. Christ should accompany us in all facets of life. So what that's saying here is it says, and whatever you do or everything, whatever, ever you may do, that's everywhere. It's not just, oh, we just do this when we come to church and Bible class, right? Oh, that's left hand, right hand, kingdom stuff. No, it's everything we do. It's both in the church and in our secular lives that we do everything in the name of the Lord. So what this means really is, is everything we do is in response to the gifts that he gives us and all, is, all that we do, our good works are done to his cl- gl- glory here then. So that's what Paul is concluding here. He's concluding this amazing section when he uses the Lord Jesus on equal footing with the way the Old Testament would use God's proper name of Yahweh. Okay, that's the name of the Lord. Paul is equating Christ then to this Yahweh. It is a reminder again that Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form and that he is our all-sufficient Savior. Um, as we are being renewed in his image, we are connected to him in everything for his gracious purposes. So then all we say and do in the lives of others and in our interactions with anything in his creation is done in his name. And this puts off this section. But this isn't that interesting, fascinating, when we think about God's name and what that means. Remember, Jesus' Jesus's name means Yahweh saves, and we, we do everything in that concept concept of Yahweh saves, Jesus saves, 
And because Jesus saves, this is why we do we do in his name, because he saved us. So I think it's brilliant uh, play here that Paul has concluded this, taking us back to the name, the name of Yahweh and the name of Jesus. Okay? So again, this is the Paul's uh, really is exhorting his readers to live out the consequences of their baptism by the which way in which we, we conduct our lives, and that's why Paul has stressed this so much. So another thing I want to talk about here just briefly on this is another, uh, the church's worship life also provides an opportunity for us to display these virtues, you know. The proclamation of the word of God, also in music and song, sustains the Christian in faith and life. And we've talked about what the divine service is and what that is is God's gifts to us. And then in response, it's our offering, thanksgiving, and praise. Um, So all such things are to be done, even in our worship, to the glory of God and the gifts that he's given us. I think that's Paul's main point here. His point is back to Jesus and his name that he saves us. Okay, any questions on that? The put off, I know we've been put a lot, a lot of time on this put on the new self, put, put to death, and then um, put on then. There's no other questions on that. Okay, so now we're going to kind of get into some nitty-gritty stuff. And uh, um, I, I'm sure if some of you guys are reading verse 18, uh, I'm going to tackle this today because this today, when you say this, it raises a real red flag. But let's, I do want to talk about it a bit. i got some really good stuff on this. So this next session, section then, call, Paul's kind of narrowing it down even further. We're still in the Christian life, in the sanctified life. He's thrown out all these kind of broad principles of what we're not supposed to do and now what we're supposed to do. But now he's going to really narrow it down. And really what this is great is I'm going to show you in the catechism. This is really the kind of the table of duties. And this is our vocational life right here in these next section in 418 um, through the end, or excuse me, 318 through the end of the chapter, actually through 4.1. So... um, Again, these are all vocational, our vocations, and um, there's going to be another number of things we'll talk about here. Um, But I do want to go ahead and start with verse 18 here. So let's read um, 3, I'm going to read actually 3.18 through 4.1, this whole section, and we'll come back um, and take it piece by piece. Okay, so verse uh, 18, 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 4 1 Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, look what we've, we've covered here. We've covered wives, husbands, Children, and then employer, employee. I mean, this is all the vocational language here. 
So, let's talk about verse 18. Can anybody tell me, you think, which word here <laughs> creates a little bit of problem in today's society? <clears throat> All right, okay. I want to talk about this word because it does when we hear it. Our English doesn't do a very good good with this. So let's look a little bit at the Greek and then we're going to kind of take a look at a passage about Jesus and then talk about what this word means. So wives, submit to your husbands. So uh, the crux here, obviously, in this section is the interpretation, interpretation of the verb submit. That's our English word. In Greek, it's hypotasathe or hypotasso. So it's, it's important to know what the Greek says on this, and I'm going to take you through it. So this, sub, this, this subjection of wife to husband is, also, is often misunderstood as demeaning, right? And indicating that one who is subject to another is inferior to another. Kind of we think of English, the English. But look, this is not the case, okay? And I'm going to take you guys through this, this term submission. So if you, if you have your Bible in front of you, why don't we look at um, Luke 2, 41. So you see the note there, the boy Jesus in the temple. That's what this section is. So I'm just going to read um, 41 through 51, and I want to talk about this here. Okay, so Luke 2, starting with uh, verse 41. Now his parents, which is now Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he, Jesus, said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Okay, verse 51, pay attention here. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in his heart. Okay, and then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, so in verse 51 here, this word, submission, it's the exact same Greek word that we used here in Colossians 3.18. It's this hupotasso, okay? 
So if Jesus then was submissive to his parents, does that mean that Jesus was inferior to Mary and Joseph? Okay. No, it doesn't at all. And it's the same verb. So as God incarnate, Christ is in no way inferior to Joseph and Mary. Okay. So then if you look at it in that way with this how this term is used, neither does a wife subject into her husband denote any inferiority of her or to him. Okay? So this concept of subjection or submission is not uh, it's not uh, related to differing human worth or with value, but it's talking about divine order. This is not a word of submission and control. It's the opposite. It's our Lord's good way of ordering things, and this has to do with headship, okay? And this may be a little long, and I apologize, and I have some other copies of this here, but I did write a little paper on this. I'm just kind of taking some excerpts out of here. I wanted to try to just talk about it, but I did a lot of research in this. So what we're talking about, this submission, then it's this, this concept of headship, but I want you to see it in terms of marriage and what this means uh, for us today and how this is supposed to be understood, this, this concept of submission, okay? So, under headship then, I, I want to take you through kind of, we look at both the man and the woman. So, as Christ Jesus himself made, himself was the groom of the church, then the man is given to be the groom to the bride, Uh, Jesus was the church's groom as he poured out his own lifeblood on the cross to make her his own. He would do anything for this bride, and he did do everything, not only ransoming her with his own blood, but also cleansing her with the washing of his holy baptism, presenting her as his bride, as Ephesians 5.25 says then, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, to present to himself the church in all glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So this is then what we get here on this concept of subjection. Really, the man is also given to be subject to the woman as her husband, knowing that the Lord honors the man to be the one to love her, take care of her, and cherish her, as Christ does his church, right? The Lord describes then marriage as this, to the bride, as the church is the bride of Christ, she is given given as the bride to the groom. The church knows her groom, Christ Jesus, as she looks to him for every good gift, desiring to hear his word of kindness, cherishing his love. Okay, as Ephesians 5.24 says, As this church is subject to Christ, so also wives to their husbands and everything. So then the bride is given to be subject to the groom as his wife, knowing that the Lord honors her to be the one to love him, to care for him and cherish him, as the church does Christ. Our Lord says, Be subject to, both here in Colossians and in Ephesians, which is really being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, subjection. This is not a word of submission and control. It's the opposite. It is our Lord's good order, ordering of things. 
It is his gift of giving us as servants to one another. The husband is servant to the wife, to be the groom to love and honor her as only a husband is given to do. The wife is servant to the husband, to the bride to be the bride to love and honor him as only a wife is given to do. So this is night not quite the description that our world gives us of marriage today or what the world uses as a description. Not the sentimentality of two birds on a limb or dancing butterflies. Not the brutal struggle of two people trying to figure out who has the power and who must submit. It is quite the opposite. The reality of a man and a woman, the groom and the bride, given to each other by the Lord as husband and wife. For so our Lord instituted it. Quote, this is from Matthew 19, 6, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. So the husband and the wife, one flesh, That is the Lord's word. Where husband and wife sin against one another, there they find themselves separated. But what God joins together, let man not separate. The Lord is there, giving his word of forgiveness, that the husband and wife may forgive one another and be restored and strengthened in the Lord's gift of one fleshness. This is the Lord's description of marriage. Bride and groom, one flesh, never to be torn apart, Husband and wife, living in the Lord's gift of the gospel, cleansing in the water of baptism, made with one, the, made one with the Lord in his gift of his own body and blood, made one with each other in his institution of marriage, and always reconciled to each other in the Lord's gift of forgiveness and grace. The bride and groom are given to enter the Lord's gift of marriage. In this way, marriage is not something the bride and groom are doing so much as the gift prepared for them by the Lord actually prepared from the creation of the man and the woman, and Adam and Eve. So when we look at this concept of submission, what it says here in, in, in Ephesians, right? It's really two, it's two ways. It's, it's on both the male and the female. It's an ordering. It's looking at the man, how the man is supposed to treat his bride as Christ uh, looks at his bride, right? So it's not just this incumbency upon the bride or the woman to act this way. No, there's a lot there on the man and then also with the wife and the submission. So it's really, that's what this whole concept of talking about, submission. So when we see it in this whole realm, we look at how it was used with Jesus when he, when he went off to the temple and then how he was submissive. And then we, we look in actually this headship and the overall look at marriage, and we look at the, how Christ and His bride is the church. It's really, um, it's really a great thing. So when people try to argue out of this that it's some way a way that we use to we you know as demeaning or indicating control, that's just not what Paul's saying here in Ephesians or in Colossians, or where it's used anywhere else in the Bible. So, um, any questions on that? I, I was just going to comment on, uh, I think, in our humanity, when we experience a well-ordered uh, process or an experience, uh, and you, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Uh, an example is, you know, going basically buying something that works well 
as it's advertised, paying a fair price, that that experience is kind of a well-ordered thing. Going to your accountant and having the flow of whatever that skill is needed, and it you walk away kind of glowing. Uh, I mean, look at our military. We we have a, a very ordered military. In fact, I think training programs are designed in which we are to you know follow orders, et cetera, et cetera, in, in a willing way. And uh, I think God has put that. For some reason, sin comes in, and we say we don't want that, you know. And so it's a, it's going against God's orderliness, like like you said. So I just wanted to comment on. I that. appreciate that. And that's exactly. Isn't that funny though? Americans, in Pastor kind of said this this morning too. We we don't like that authority or order. We just don't like that. But then if you think about your lives, we're pretty ordered, right? I mean, almost everything we do, like you said, the banking process, our work, or your accountant, or this and that, we we are. Are ordered, and that, that, that's what this this is all about speaking to here. But again, we got to be very careful when we use this this term submit. That it actually goes both ways, and it's certainly not meant to be a demeaning or indicating that one's lower than the other. When you look at this, that's a marriage relationship. Everything's based about what Christ does to His church, and then what what the church does to Christ. And we look at it, this whole scheme. Um, there is comfort in there that this is all. Gift talk, then. Okay. Yes, Ellie? Mm -hmm. Having been in the classroom for decades, I finally came down to two reasons for the system that tries to get something, tries to meet the demands of, of teacher and student. And it is this. It is for safety and is to get something done. Those are the two things that make even the military function and go forward. There, there, you, and most usually there's going to be a kid in the class who is saying, and this, is my, this was my domain, mm -hmm. the... Um, there's always something, some kid that says, why do we have to do this? And it is for safety, and it is to get something done. And that, even to me, I'm driving down the highway and say, why is the speed limit only 55? <laughs> we do that all the time, right? Yeah, there is lots of things, right? Yeah, it's a good ordering, and that's how God, God uses the left-hand kingdom then to... to to keep order within a structured society, which then takes me back to my argument about vocation. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay. So if there are any, any other questions on that, let's go back to uh, Colossians then. We covered uh, verse 18. Now we'll go here, um, which is then kind of the follow-up of everything we just said. So Paul says this, but then so he talks about wives, right? Now, on verse 19, he follows it up with this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, again, what is required of the husband? I'm going to repeat myself here, but I'm going to say it again. As Christ Jesus made himself the groom of the church, the man is given to be a groom to the bride. Jesus was the church's groom as he poured out his own lifeblood on the cross to make her his own. He would do anything for this bride, and he did do everything not only ransoming her with his own blood, but also cleansing her with the washing of a holy baptism, presenting her as his bride. 
So the man is given to the woman as her husband, knowing that the Lord honors the man to be the one to love her, to take care of her, and cherish her as the Christ, as Christ does the church. So Paul's just mod- modeling other areas he's talked about this as marriage um, and what the husband and wife do. So at the beginning, I talked about then that this is the this is the table of duty section. Of course, I'm going to continue to throw in a little bit of catechesis in this class when I can. So, if you'll recall, we do have a table of duties in our catechism, and it covers a number of things. So, we just talked about husbands and wives here, and I want to read then just a couple things out of the catechisms, what under the table of duties. And, and if you guys have your, if you ever want to look, it starts about on, if you have this, the new version, it's page 33. Luther came up with this. This was part of the small catechism. And remember the table, table of duties, it, it, it gives to bishops, pastors, and preachers. It talks about that, of civil government, of citizens, husbands, wives, parents, children. So it goes along everything in this, this vocational realm. So we just talked about to husbands and to wives. So here's what the catechism says under the table of duties then to follow up. What Paul just wrote, to husbands... Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And then Luther quotes Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then to wives in the catechism here. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, citing Ephesians 5.22, but we've also seen it here in Colossians. Um, they were submission to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him master. You are a daughter. Daughters, if you do what is right, do not give way to fear. So again, it's, it's talking about ordering things here. So that's um, um, the table of duties. Um, let's see what else here. Fathers. Okay. Any other questions on 18 or 19 there? Got a couple more minutes. I'm going to try to get through maybe one more of these things. So there's, so we've now we've covered the um, husbands and wife. Now we'll move on to family. Okay, so I will read 20 and 21. Let's see, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Okay? So there is somewhat a similar note of mutuality in the relationship between within uh, children and parents here. Uh, children are directed to obey their parents as part of God's good order and creation, which we talked about, same with marriage, which continues to guide the earthly lives of His redeemed people. Here, father and mother are placed on the same level as far as the child is concerned, they are, and the child's obedience to them is his one concern. So again, now he goes on, uh, Paul here, we talked about wives and husbands, but now he says, children, obey your parents, same equal footing right, the child obedience is to both of them, and there's no wiggle room on that, clearly. Okay, then fathers, okay, there's a, the next is fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So, this is interesting. I started reading about this. I said, well, but what about mothers? So here's kind of what I could fo- find up kind of in the commentaries here. So mothers may be seen as being left out of the nurturing role of a, 
of parenting in Paul's instruction to the fathers in raising children. But Paul is merely emphasizing, excuse me, emphasizing the fatherly role in their child's lives. And it's important, all the commentators I've read, they, they say this is not to exclude the godly important role mothers play. Clearly, we know that. The fact that children are addressed at all in this letter from an apostle, uh, which was to be read publicly in a congregation here, is noteworthy. The parents and, um, themselves are given an obligation towards their children. Um, so I want to read this other thing by Dr. Dittering. He says, parents carry out their role, especially in a positive way, so that children grow up with an emotional vigor for the Christian life. So that's what kind of Paul's getting at here. Um, and it's certainly not to the exclusion of mothers um, on this. So again, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is really all about just uh, bringing them up in the way of the Lord and rearing them um, so they can grow up with this emotional vigor for the Christian life, as Dr. Dietering says. Let's see, any questions or anything to add on that? So you see on uh, 21, too, it says the provoke literally means embitter. Um, um, discipline and encouragement, law and gospel are necessary when raising children. I think as parents, we've known that. We've given law and gospel, right, uh, to our children. That's, that's good. Follow-up questions on that? Okay, I'll, f- I'll finish with this, and then next week we'll move on to another topic, slaves. So in the table of duties here, then, to parents, which we just read, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's a little bit different than what's said here, but Paul also says this in Ephesians 6, 4. Again, fathers, do not exasperate. That's to irritate or frustrate or provoke, I guess. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then two children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long, a long life on the earth. So, table of duties in our sanctified life here. On that, I... Probably going to end it here because I want to get into this next. It says slaves. This is a pretty uh, fascinating topic. I know it's a, but we have we do have one more follow up question in the back. It seems to me um, you can have the most spiritually beautific mother, and if the father isn't leading the children in the way of the church, the Lord, you know, our command as Christians, the child probably won't follow it. Yeah. And, and I, it's very sad, but I think it feeds right back into the husband has that ownership and leadership that he has to obey. And Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I should have brought this. When I do my presentation, I, don't, I think I did it for maybe a Sunday class here on... I did it somewhere on the fourth commandment. I love. I have a, a slide presentation on, it. and it's interesting. Um, and I, maybe I'll bring it next time. I I put put together all these statistics on bad things to say. The number of men that are in prison and women. The percentage. Mm-hmm. 
that, that were raised without a father. I mean, and, and the list goes on and on. So you, you are right. I mean, that's, this is true. I mean, the father, the parental un- togetherness, mother and father, are absolutely critical for raising children. And it models for the son yes. that he should be in a Christian marriage. Yeah. yeah. So it just goes. Yeah, it does. Back and forth. Right, right. And sometimes it doesn't. And, and when we do that, we do, we do weep about it, and, and, but we, we, we pray, right? We pray to God for them, for our children, which we pray every day for our children and our spouses and, 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 and society in general. So. But you're right, yeah. I'll bring that next time. This, I have a really cool statistical on that. About, so. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Have, have a good week. We'll see you next week, and the Lord be with you.